Okay, hello everybody. Today is Monday, another Zodiac Monday. Welcome to the show. Just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first is that this show is available for free downloads at Launchpad 1. You can download the audio version as a pure podcast there. The link is in the description box. And on Wednesdays this year, I've started a regular series about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders, and that one will have a new episode coming out this Wednesday. So if you haven't hit the like button and subscribe to the channel yet, now is a great time to do so. Last week on the Zodiac Killer News Report, I was talking about the book Profiled by Mark Hewitt, which is part of the Zodiac Serial Killer Trilogy. There are three books in it, Hunted, Profiled, and Exposed. And last week, I responded to Mark Hewitt's assessment of the Lake Herman Road murders, the first confirmed crime in Zodiac activity. The Zodiac Killer was a serial killer that operated in 1968 and 69 in California. In addition to committing murders, he also made numerous taunts to the police, as well as to members of the media, particularly to a journalist named Paul Avery. However, some people believe that the first Zodiac crime did not occur on December 20th of 1968. It actually occurred on, no on October 30th of 1966, with the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, and her murder is discussed very frequently in the book Profiled by Mark Hewitt. But after talking about Sherry Jo Bates and the Lake Herman Road murders, the second confirmed Zodiac crime was the Blue Rock Springs shooting, which occurred on July 4th of 1969. This saw the death of Darlene Farron and the shooting of Mike Michaud, who would go on to survive. And there's some material that I would like to immediately respond to. The first one is, when did the shooting actually occur? Because in the past, I've really gone through some efforts to try and find the exact time, and the best that I could do was to say that it occurred at 11.55 p.m. on July 4th of 1969, and then Mike Majot and Darlene Farron have been shot, and then some people find them, and they make a phone call to the authorities at 12.10 a.m. on July 5th of 69, and Darlene Farron arrives at the hospital at 12.38 a.m., where she is pronounced dead on arrival, and I should say she's pronounced dead at 12.38, and then the phone call comes in from the Zodiac killer, or somebody taking credit for the murder, saying that if you go one mile to the east, you'll find some kids in a brown car, they were shot with a mile with a 9mm Luger, I'm the one who did it, I also killed those kids last year, and of course the very famous goodbye, and that phone call was heard by Nancy Slover. As I understand, there are no recordings of the call, but some interesting points about that are that the person did not say that he was the Zodiac, and the Zodiac even took credit for Darlene Ferrin's murder in a letter, also not using the name Zodiac, and... Mark Hewitt made a very interesting observation in the book that the the phone booth that was used, or the payphone that was used, rather, is in a very particular place because it's almost as if it's closer to Highway Route I-80 in California as opposed to the actual crime scene. And we also have to bear in mind that it's possible that as much as 45 minutes has passed from the time that Darlene Farron and Mike Majot should have been shot, and it, I'm fully aware that my, my view of the timeline might be off. Maybe it was at 11.59 p.m., maybe 12.01 a.m. on July 5th, but in that vicinity. So 40, 45 minutes have gone by. 
And Mark Hewitt openly asks the question in the book, what was the Zodiac Killer doing during that time? Did he just go somewhere to take a breather for a second? Because if this were an inexperienced murderer, he probably would have been a little bit overwhelmed with adrenaline, so to speak. Or did he do something else in the meantime? Did he commit some type of ritualistic activity? And one point that is not mentioned in the book, but that was posted on a forum by Richard Grinnell of ZodiacCiphers.com was, is it possible that the Zodiac went somewhere to change his clothes? Because if he had committed the shooting, it's possible that he could have had blood spatter on his clothing and he wanted to change, and that would account for the 40 to 45 minutes, and he's probably going someplace, secluded area, washing his hands. And some people simply think that the Zodiac Killer lived in Vallejo, and that he lived near the payphone that was used to make that phone call. And then there are other people, which I guess as Mark Hewitt is proposing, is that the reason why that payphone was chosen because of its proximity to a major highway, meaning the person is going to commit the crime and get out of town. And yes, many, many other people have, um, have brought that theory to mind, and I was just talking to someone about their take on that subject, and they said the exact same thing, that they thought that the Blue Rock Springs shooting was committed, and then the person made the payphone because it was close to a highway, and the Zodiac wanted to get out of town because he didn't live in the Vallejo area. And I would love to know your response to the question, what was the Zodiac killer doing in between the Blue Rock Springs shooting and the time of the Blue Rock Springs call? And the second uh, question that I would like to ask is, was the Zodiac a resident of Vallejo, or was he trying to get out of town? And the reason why people talk about this is they think that that's how this person evaded capture. That was the whole plan the whole time, that he's going to commit a murder, and then he's going to get out of town. He is going to attack somebody and then go to another county or another state, and they're going to be looking in the immediate area, when in reality he'll be hundreds of miles away. So another point that was brought up by Mark Hewitt in the book Profiled is this is a different crime than the Lake Herman Road murders, which saw the deaths of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, and it's for that very reason. Both the victims died in the Lake Herman Road murders. However, there was a surviving victim named Mike Majot, and Mark Hewitt um, explained that Mike Majot just turned out to be a very unreliable witness. At first, in the police reports, he says that he could not see any major facial features of the perpetrator or the man that shot him. All that he could say was that his face was really big. He estimated that he was around 5 feet, 8 inches tall, not fat, but very beefy, but on the shorter side, and then says that he is um, maybe 200 pounds, 190, 95, or 200 pounds. And then... Mike Majot's story would change, and this is the stuff that I did get from Profiled, that then Mike Majot was saying that um, he had a face that was more similar to the composite sketch, then he said he may have been wearing glasses, and this really reminded me of a story that was shared on Tom Voigt's channel, and it talked about the testimony of a man named William Crow, and I know Tom Voigt does not want to be mentioned in the same discussion as Mark Hewitt, but he said that the testimony of a man named William Crow, who was a witness prior to the Lake Herman Road murders, who did something rather similar. On December 20th of 1968, David Faraday and Betty Lou Johnson were murdered, but in the time preceding that, 
a male named William Crow and his girlfriend pulled into the Lake Hermit Road parking lot, and William Crow got out of the car to tinker with the sports car's motor, and then a suspicious vehicle pulled in, and William Crow's testimony was that he could see two people in the vehicle, and they were both Caucasian males, but he couldn't make out any particular features. Then he would later change his story and say that he saw one male in the vehicle, and that person resembled the zodiacular composite sketch, and that person was wearing glasses. And the reason I'm talking about these two at the same time is to give you my own honest assessment of guys like Mike Mijot and William Crow, and that is that I think that people got caught up in the story. I think that they got caught up in the publicity of the Zodiac Killer, and they were simply going along with an idea because it was popular. They th they were simply going along because they wanted to be incorporated into the story, especially in the case of William Crow. With Mike Bajot, he was shot numerous times. A bullet penetrated his jaw and even went through his tongue. He was shot in the knee or the lower leg area numerous times. He more or less was sprayed with bullets and sounds horribly painful, but he then proved to be an unreliable witness. And he is saying all types of different things. And I think some of it is caught up with the media and storytelling and hysteria, as well as just trying to um, tell people what they want to hear. And Mike Michaud, as you heard, of course, isn't the only unreliable witness. Other members of Darlene Farron's family proved to be unreliable as well. But the book profile really gives us the opportunity to talk about some of these psychological aspects of the case. And the first 78 pages of this book deal mostly with serial killers, mass shooters, and um, people who have committed other types of murders, such as family annihilators. And I spent last week's Anything Goes Friday segment talking about the chapters there, the first early parts of the book profiled, and you can find that on this channel in the episode profiled, The Psychology of Serial Killers and Mass Shooters. I invite you to listen to that one, as well as going through some of the other content here on Black Box Online Radio. But as far as the book profiled goes, there are some other points that are made with the Zodiac Killers timeline, because after the Blue Rock Springs shooting, the Zodiac Killer would not only make the phone call, but also would write in the first Zodiac letters, and the Zodiac ciphers. This shows that he is trying to commit somewhat of a three-way relationship with law enforcement as well as with the media. So you have law enforcement, the media, and the killer. And Mark Hewitt um, addresses the question of why would somebody do this by simply stating that there are numerous examples of killers who have taunted the police or taunted the media, and he brings up BTK, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam Shooter, and some that I'll talk about later on. And I think that this goes to show you that it really isn't that far out of the question, because even if you go all the way back to Jack the Ripper, the Ripper is another serial killer mystery that has letters that are taunting the police and law enforcement, especially if you count something such as the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee as law enforcement, but it's ser serving a similar function, and these behaviors are definitely present over time. An interesting point, though, about 
the Zodiac mailing it letters that is mentioned in the book Profiled is that the Zodiac had numerous misspellings in his letters, and one of them is that he would frequently cite the word Christmas as Christmas. That's just an example. But this, from the very beginning, the Zodiac is misspelling words regularly. He would spell the word paradise, P-A-R-A-D-I-C-E, that was used in the 408 cipher, as well as on other future documents, such as the Halloween card, which would come later. But the 408 cipher was mailed after the Blue Rock Spring shooting. So the Zodiac is misspelling words. But one observation that is shared by Mark Hewitt, and he cites the source of a profiler John Douglas, is that... The Zodiac would actually spell words correctly that were more complicated than the words that he is misspelling. Does that not suggest that these uh, misspellings were completely intentional? Or he's trying to make the police and the media think things that were not true? And this is all tied together throughout the book in something that is about the power-assertive personality. It is about domination. It's about making people think in a certain way, it, even if it leads to confusion, because the killer is the one who knows the real truth. Now, some points in the book which I will challenge is, uh, Mark Hewitt is writing very certainly that the 1966 murder of Sherry Jo Bates was genuine Zodiac activity, and I will challenge that by saying that I am not convinced at all that Sherry Jo Bates was indeed murdered by the Zodiac killer. It's possible, but I am not convinced at all for the following reasons. Last week on the Zodiac Killer News Report, I did a response to Ken Maines and his channel Unsolved No More talking about the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, and he laid out some alternative possibilities to the Zodiac Killer being her murderer. Sherry Jo Bates was murdered on October 30th of 1966, and she was found outside of the RCC library, that's Riverside City College, in an alleyway, which would have actually been a dirt stretch of the alley and she was found on Halloween morning, October 31st of 1966. And the alternative possibilities were that, number one, she was killed by either an ex or current boyfriend named Bob Barnett. Number two is that it was an opportunistic abduction that went wrong. And number three, she was murdered by somebody named Ross Sullivan, who maybe was not the Zodiac Killer, but the murderer of Sherry Jo Bates. And there are many, many other possibilities. Those are three alternatives, and the major one would be that she was killed by the Zodiac. The murder of Sherry Jo Bates is discussed in the book Profiled rather frequently, and the reasons why Mark Hewitt is looking at this as a psychological um, explanation is by saying that Sherry Jo Bates was not murdered near her car. In fact, she was murdered at quite a substantial distance away in the alleyway. Once again, looking at um, the way that the FBI would profile crimes and stating that she wouldn't have gone very far with somebody that she didn't know. And I believe this um. I believe this is actually another quotation from John Douglas, the FBI profiler John Douglas, that is, that has led him to this conclusion to suggest that Sherry Jo Bates knew her attacker. And I think that it is, um, well, jumping to conclusions a little bit, and the reason why I say that is because 
countless times through examining true crime cases, we find this behavior with serial killers, serial abductors, and offenders, especially sex offenders. They are very good at luring people to a desired place, even if they don't know the victim. So she walked 200 meters, 200 yards away with somebody that she didn't know. That is completely within the scope of possibilities. And the example that I always go back to is the case of um, the serial killer John Arthur Ackroyd, who was mentioned in the documentary Ghosts of Highway 20. I have an episode about him and his victims, and he was only actually convicted of one murder, the murder of Kay Turner, but almost certainly he committed numerous other crimes. And he abducted a woman once who was able to break free and to get away from him. And she said during the process of abduction, she's on the side of of the road, and he offers her a ride, and he was completely non-threatening. He didn't give off a single threatening vibe, and she got into the car with him. Serial offenders are very good at putting people in a false sense of security, so I don't think there is anything that suggests that Sherry Jo Bates knew um, her attacker, and that's why she would have walked to the alleyway or gone in any particular direction with this person, it's entirely possible. Roger Kibbe, the I-5 Strangler, was also very good at getting strangers into his car. And uh, I often bring up the murder of Zhang Yi King from the American Midwest. That's a little bit more of a contemporary crime that happened just about five years ago, where they thought that almost certainly she was murdered by somebody that she knew because they had a video of her entering into a car so easily, but she was running late for an appointment and some stranger offered her a ride and she accepted and the man murdered her because people put the victims in a false sense of security. And that guy wasn't even a serial offender. It's quite possible that Zhang Yingying was his uh, first murder victim. Zhang Yingying was uh, originally... um from China. She was an international student murdered in the American Midwest. But this is completely consistent with both outcomes. I don't think that that should be interpreted in any particular direction. Now this begs the question, how do we examine the Riverside Confession letter? Do you think that the killer is telling the truth or not? On, in November of 1966, somebody would confess to murdering Sherry Jo Bates and provide certain details of the crime, and he doesn't say that it was an opportunistic abduction. He doesn't say that he was an ex-lover. He doesn't say that his name is Ross Sullivan. It's quite to the contrary. He says that he is somebody who was at least briefly acquainted with Sherry Jo Bates. He definitely knew her. He doesn't say if she knew him or not. What he said is that he murdered her because he wanted to make her pay for the brush-offs that she had experienced, that he had experienced from her in the past. Now, what on earth um, does that mean? Is this person telling the truth, or is this person a prankster, a liar, or is this the Zodiac taking credit for a murder that he didn't commit in preparations of becoming a real serial killer later on? It really is a mystery, but very honest with you, I'm somewhat conflicted on that. Firstly, I think that there's a fair case that you could make for that it was indeed what Ken Maine said. It was an abduction that was gone wrong. Someone was trying to abduct her and take her to another place, perhaps for sexual assault and then to murder her. But because of the resistance that Sherry Jo Bates put in, she um, was murdered closer to 
the scene near the RCC library. Or it could be that this person is telling the truth in the confession, that he is indeed the murderer of Sherry Jo Bates, and she was targeted, and specifically targeted because he knew her, and he was attracted to her, but she wasn't giving him the attention that she wanted, and he was some type of twisted, demented individual who was trying to blame his sexuality for the atrocities that he wanted to commit because the killer, or the author of the confession, then goes on to state some other things about why he is going to target other females, not males, which the Zodiac did. Now, excuse me for going forward in time and then backward in time, starting with the Blue Rock Spring shooting and then talking about Sherry Jo Bates with 1966, because then we have to go ahead again to... 1969, and I really wanted to talk to you about the sections in the book about the Lake Berryessa stabbing. And the Lake Berryessa stabbing occurred on September 27th of 1969. It is the third confirmed crime in, in Zodiac activity, and the first confirmed crime that took place after the Zodiac killer announced his name to the world. The Zodiac would write letters to the three newspapers in July of 1969 and postmarked on July 31st of 1969, I believe, and he wrote them and sent part of his cipher to the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner, and the Vallejo Times Herald. Then, the Zodiac debuts by name on August 4th of 1969, providing additional information and the Zodiac symbol, which would then go on to be published in the Vallejo Times-Herald. So, the killer would not operate in the month of August, and I can perhaps share some of Mark Hewitt's observations later on, but then the killer operates at the end of September 1969, September 27th, the first crime to take place in the season of autumn, or the fall. Now, one observation that Mark Hewitt has made in the book that, again, I have to challenge is that he insists that the Zodiac was wearing a hooded costume that was square, that it formed into a square shape at the top. And when you look at the illustrations and the recreations of the Lake Berryessa costume, he, in, well, not he, you will see that there is one that is more rectangular. It kind of looks like a paper shopping bag shape, but not necessarily square. And I know what Mark Hewitt is going to say, and the reason why he's talking about this is because he has said very clearly in other sources that he thinks that the Lake Berryessa costume was made out of a graduation cap and gown, particularly the cap, like the square cap that people would wear at a graduation ceremony, was used as the base for the Lake Berryessa costume. But I'm just not really convinced the Lake Berryessa costume had such a square shape to it. And I know that we have just the illustrations made by Robert Graysmith, that, who wasn't a witness to the crime, but Brian Hartnell was indeed a witness to that, and I just have some trouble believing that, because when you look at other types of hooded costumes and hooded gear, they don't necessarily form into a complete square shape the way that a graduation cap would. And Mark Hewitt's suspect in the Zodiac Killer Mysteries, of course, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Mark Hewitt is a believer that the Zodiac and the Unabomber are one and the same, and that he, um, well, he committed both sets of murders. And I also had the opportunity to listen to an interview that Mark Hewitt did with House of, uh, House of Mystery 
and I believe Michael Butterfield was co-hosting that one. And you can hear that stuff here on YouTube, available for free, once again, on House of Mystery. And the points that were discussed in that one is that Mark Hewitt thinks that the Zodiac and the Unabomber are one and the same. Why the infrequency in Zodiac activity? Why commit a crime December 20th, 1968, July 4th, 1969, and September 27th of 1969? Well, he has some evidence that... Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, was in Canada, British Columbia to be precise, looking at land properties, and then he also had some evidence that at some point Ted Kaczynski was in Nebraska camping with his brother, David, during 1969, but there is not exactly a direct route from British Columbia to Nebraska and then to Lombard Illinois, where Ted Kaczynski was from, using that as a permanent address. So he proposed that, is it possible that they drove down from British Columbia, went through the San Francisco Bay Area, which Kaczynski would have been acquainted with, and then went over to Nebraska. So driving to the San Francisco Bay Area, committing one of the Zodiac crimes, or maybe mailing the letters, and as we said before, with the highways and the interstates, then getting out of town, and continuing onward to the American Midwest. Now, I do not endorse nor support the Zodiac Unabomber connection. I just simply wanted to present it as I heard it, and I think that there would that would require a little bit more substantiation. However, that um, that is how he would present it. But the things we can actually challenge, as opposed to just simply, well, maybe he was here, maybe he was there, is... Um, what was the Zodiac doing at Lake Berryessa? Firstly, what happened in August of 1969? Why no crime if the Zodiac is committing murders in July, September, and later on October? But why not in August of 1969? Well, one thing that did happen was the Sharon Tate murders as well as the murders of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Seven people lost their lives at the hands of the Manson family, and that really stole a lot of press coverage from the Zodiac Killer. And in the killer's mind, did he want to do something that would turn himself into something that is a little bit more epic than that of what happened in Southern California with the Tate-LaBianca murders, even though he probably wouldn't get credit for it, because the Zodiac's wearing this hooded costume. It's almost as if he's trying to turn himself into some type of comic book villain, so to speak. But how on earth would he have known that the victims would survive the Lake Berryessa attack? Because both victims did. Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were attacked by the Zodiac Killer at Lake Berryessa, and Cecilia Shepard went on to live for two more days on the hospital, and Brian Hartnell would go on to survive, and he still lives to this day. Now, some points that uh, Mark Hewitt brought up about this were that this was a very premeditated and calculated murder, even if all you look at is the amount of gear and preparation that the Zodiac Killer did. But he also points out that the Zodiac wrote a message on Brian Hartnell's car door that said the uh, Zodiac symbol 
the word Vallejo, the dates of Zodiac activity beginning with December 20th of 68 and ending with the Lake Berryessa stabbing, set 27-69 at 6.30 p.m., and then the words by knife. So there's a, the, the interesting observation is that how did the Zodiac know that Brian Hartnell's car would have a light-colored door? Did he also bring a white pen with him in case he had to draw on a black car or a dark-colored car? Because everybody is suggesting that the victims were not targeted, this is all about the locations, and this is all about the... Um, concept of just committing a murder, and I believe that Mark Hewitt does indeed say that, that um, a serial killer has decided at an early age that um, he is going to do these destructive actions because of a selfish reason, as opposed to, um, well, anything to the contrary, and that's the primary motive, and I think he said very clearly that Ted Kaczynski openly talked about how he just wanted to be a murderer, for lack of a better term, and I think that's kind of reading between the lines, but his ambition was to kill people and to wreak havoc upon society, and has nothing to do with industrialization and society. Instead, it is more about just creating chaos for his own benefit, because he's the one who gets to do the manipulations. But how did the Zodiac know that Brian Hartnell was going to be driving a light-colored car to write in, in black ink. Maybe the Zodiac brought a white pen with him. It's an interesting observation. And one thing that I've been talking about on this channel for quite some time is something that I heard from a fictional FBI profiler played by Kelly Martin in a movie when she said that when the victims are stabbed, as they were at Lake Berryessa, that suggests that there is a personal familiar connection between the killer and the victim. Did the Zodiac actually know Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, either one or the other, and that they were targeted because of a, of, of a personal reason, and that maybe the Zodiac was only familiar with one of those two people, and that's how he knew that Brian Hartnell's car door was going to be a light color? I'm just throwing that out there. It's probably nothing, but I would love to hear some type of response to that. So, this brings up a very, very important question. Why is the Zodiac Killer wearing the hooded costume at Lake Berryessa? The Zodiac committed the Lake Harmon Road murders by gun, the Blue Rock Springs shooting, obviously, by gun, the Stein murder by gun, but not the Lake Berryessa stabbing. And to use some elements from other sources, what exactly would the Zodiac try to do at Lake Berryessa? Why did he make this costume? If his intention was to murder the victims, no one would even know the story of it. One point that is talked about frequently in the book Profiled is it could have come from the Mikado. The Zodiac frequently quotes the Mikado, saying that he, um, well, he just quotes the songs from it, but there's a character in the Mikado named Coco, the Lord High Executioner. That's one. Somebody once sent me a photo of a welder in an older welder's outfit, and even some of the newer ones have some similarities that the, um, 
the fabric and the material is shaped in a rather similar way, and that maybe the Zodiac wore clip-on sunglasses at Lake Berryessa to cover up the eye holes that would have been replaced with goggles. And someone once told me that they thought it was very similar to an older firefighter's uniform, and their Zodiac killer suspect was a firefighter. Or, as Mark Hewitt proposed in the book Profiled, I think this is more suggested as a possibility that he didn't wear a scarf, he didn't wear a ski mask, balaclava, or like he didn't wear a bandana around his face simply to hide his identity. It would have been so easy to hide his identity. But what that would not allow him to do is to have a piece of fabric that would come down hanging over the chest off of the mask to include the zodiac symbol. And when you look at a lot of recreations of this, you'll see these massive zodiac symbols that are on the chest of the zodiac. If I recall from reading the police reports, it's actually estimated to have only been three inches by three inches, like a three by three zodiac symbol. And I just want to turn over the question to you. What was the reason why that costume was used? Is it something as simple as the zodiac was a welder and he had the ability to make that very easily? Was he a firefighter and he had the ability to make that very easily? What do you think about the uh, concept of using a graduation cap as the base? Share any observations that you have about the Zodiac Killer's Lake Berryessa costume. I would love to read your comments in the section down below. And the next one would be to talk about that symbol because I was listening to Mark Hewitt's interview on House of Mystery and he talked about how in mathematics, as Ted Kaczynski was a PhD in, there is a very familiar circle with a cross going through it, and it is a mathematical symbol called a unit circle, and this unit circle can be arranged with radians, and the Zodiac Killer would talk about radians very specifically, saying that, um, he had planted a bomb somewhere, and it concerned radians and inches along the radians. And the zo not only would um, the Zodiac threaten to detonate a bomb, but then Ted Kaczynski goes on to become the Unabomber. So this is Mark Hewitt's more or less um, showing the evolution of the Zodiac into the Unabomber. And it's important to remember that the Zodiac-Unabomber connection has been widely discussed by various people. Douglas Oswell also wrote a book called The Unabomber and the Zodiac, and after I get through the Hunted trilogy, or I should say the Zodiac Serial Killer trilogy of Hunted, Profiled, and Exposed, I absolutely want to read Douglas Oswell's book, The Unabomber and the Zodiac, and do some comparing and contrasting, because a lot of people talk about how maybe the books are um, a little bit overly similar, and I want to find out for myself. And the second um, point is that I believe Michael Butterfield has entertained the idea of Ted Kaczynski being both the Zodiac Killer and the Unabomber in the past, and maybe he wouldn't want me to say this, but Michael Cole also said some praiseworthy things about uh, Ted Kaczynski as a Zodiac Killer suspect. However, he absolutely does not endorse the Zodiac-Unabomber connection at present. But you guys can um, share some things in the comment section, though, about what do you think about Ted Kaczynski as a Zodiac Killer suspect. And a point, though, that should be uh, shared in conclusion is there is some dispute about Ted Kaczynski's whereabouts at the time of Zodiac activity. And, you know, Mark Hewitt can correct me 
if he wants, but I think that his assessment of it is that no one has specifically pinpointed Ted Kaczynski's location on the dates of Zodiac activity. Instead, they rather make the assumption that he was living in the American Midwest at the time, because that was where his permanent address was located, even though, as we said, in 1969, he was in British Columbia for a time, he was in Nebraska for a time, so he's moving around a lot during the, act, the periods of Zodiac activity, and no one has actually been able to show on the exact days that he was, well, anywhere, and then it's their responsibility to prove that he was in a different location. Again, I'm just trying to interpret his assessment of the Zodiac-Unabomber connection, but with the Lake Berryessa stabbing, it is so different than the first two Zodiac crimes, Lake Herman Road and Blue Rock Springs, and it is even different than the murder of Sherry Jo Bates from 1966, because here's a, here's a difference. The Zodiac at Lake Berryessa is trying to be dominant, in control, not letting the victims fight. The Zodiac at Lake Berryessa had the victims tied up. Before they were stabbed, the Zodiac approached them with a drawn gun. He's trying to calm them down, saying, All I want is your money. I'm an escaped convict. I just got out of a prison called, like, um, uh, um, Deer Lodge or something, or Fern Feathers or Fern Lock in um, either Montana or Colorado, or, yeah, the thing. And um, he just is, like, rambling on and on and on. And he is really only trying to make physical contact with the victims once they've been completely incapacitated, or they're in completely defenseless rather than incapacitated. They have been tied up, hog-tied with their hands, tied to their feet behind their backs, and they aren't really able to fight back. And bear in mind, the Zodiac also would have had a loaded handgun there, which quite possibly could have been a forty-five. So with the murder of Sherry Jo Bates, one of the other reasons why I don't think this was the Zodiac is she fought back so hard, and th that is just so much more confrontational. And normally, a serial killer isn't going to start out more vicious than he ends up, as, um, as stated by Kevin Brooks. That was his original point, just citing the source. So what do you make of any of this material? I would love to read your responses in the comments section down below. And everybody stay tuned, and we will be right back after this quick word from our sponsor.